Welcome to Friday. Welcome to Week in Review. Hi, Bill Radke here. I'm your host this hour. We get that you've been busy all week, so we've been following the news. That's what we do, following the big developments of the week. We're going to catch you up on those this hour with three pillars of local journalism. South Seattle Emerald reporter Mike Davis. Good to see you again, Mike. Hey, how's it going, Bill? It's good, thanks. Welcome back. And welcome back to The Stranger editor Chase Burns. Chase, good to see you. Hey, you're a pillar too, Bill. So that's a total of four pillars now. So we've moved beyond stool to actually having a solid chair of journalism. Thank you, Chase. Beyond stool. That's K-O-W slogan. Uh, We also have political analyst and contributing columnist Joni Balter. Joni, great to have you back. We can hold this up. We can totally hold this up. Yes, it is solid. Uh, So first of all, I just want to say, obviously, we've got Russia continuing to invade Ukraine today, moving on the capital. And uh, some of our local Russian community here are standing in solidarity with Ukrainians. I'm ashamed. I, I don't want to be a citizen of aggressor country. I want to, to live uh, in peace with other people all over the world. That's Zelensova Maria, who moved here last summer, and she was with Hundreds of people last night at the base of the Space Needle. It was a mix of Ukrainians and Russians flying the blue and yellow Ukrainian flag and protesting this invasion. Uh, Of course, NPR is monitoring events there in Ukraine, in Europe, in Washington. If we need to, we're going to switch away to special coverage. Otherwise, we're going to stick to local news for an hour. And, of course, we stream the show live on YouTube and Facebook, so you can watch the show if you like. You just hop on there and search K-U-O-W Public Radio. Okay, let's talk about what's been, first of all, a cold week, an extra extra hard time to be on the streets. And so in a few minutes, we're going to check in on the help that folks are and are not getting. Uh, but first, we're going to begin with, uh, with new rules, right? Seattle's got a new city attorney, a new city councilor, a new mayor. Mayor Bruce Harrell has been promising to fight the rise in violent crime and property crime by directing police to focus on violence and disorder in hot spots like Little Saigon, the area around 12th and Jackson. This is Mayor Harrell from his State of the City speech uh, talking about some results. Working with the community, including the restaurant and shop owners in Little Saigon, our police officers in the first 21 days of January made 23 felony arrests. 14 misdemeanor arrests. And Harold also said that SPD recovered stolen property. So, uh, Mike Davis, a, we were asking our listeners about this, and one of them returned a question to us saying, where did those people go? Was the, quote, problem corrected? I suspect just kicked down the road to the burbs, for instance. So what do, you, do, you, do you think that this is crime reduction, or is this just moving things around the city and giving this 12th and Jackson block a, a respite? Could you hear me, Mike? Did you hear that? Did everyone hear? Does everyone hear me? I can hear you. Yeah. Oh, okay. I think um, Mike. Well, oh, Mike's, there you are. Mike's computer froze up. Okay, I see you moving around a little bit there, Mike. But how's your Wi-Fi? Did you? Can you want to try again? Can you hear me? I hear you now. Can you? Okay. Um, I I did not hear your question, but okay. I can guess where you were going with that. I think you're. You're addressing the fact that, you know, on 12th and Jackson, he did the sweep. The question is, where are people going to go? I don't think the suburbs is going to be a viable option here. If we remember back in 2021, the city of Auburn made 
sleeping in tents illegal and they like stepped it up to a penalty that included jail time if you look at the city of renting for example in the city of renting if residents see tents and report tents Written PD will come and sweep those tents immediately. Seattle was the place. Mayor Durkin will come. Mike, I'm going to have to pause pause this because you're totally- you're breaking up. And so let, let's have uh, see if Mike Davis, if you can get maybe hop on hop, hop off and back on. We'll see if you can get you a better line. And I know Mike didn't hear my question. I started off talking about the uh, sort of the so-called open air drug market and the. Uh, at the, the sort of congregating at uh, 12th and Jackson and was asking whether that is um, when when Mayor Harrell talks about uh, felony arrests, 23 felony arrests, 14 misdemeanor arrests and stolen property recovered. Joni, uh, my question was whether this is a, a reduction in crime or just uh, breaking it up here on this block and 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 it appears someplace else. Well, what I think about that is I think that the um, there's an overall different feeling entirely and different focus in Seattle right now. Um, officials are trying to do the prep work in advance of moving homeless people uh, to, to find them some shelter. They're not always successful. We can't we can't uh, say that. But what's what's going on in the sort of bigger picture is that several blue cities, including Seattle, I would add San Francisco and New York to that are trying to help small businesses right now that are really struggling from COVID, of course, but from the rise in in crime. It's really, really impacting these businesses. So um, I just went up to uh, 12th and Jackson to see if this mobile police uh, force was up there. And in one of the uh, little mini malls up there, there was, there was, it's a mobile unit. It was basically a little van, a couple other police cars. But Bruce Harrell is trying to live up to um, his campaign promises, really, telling you that elections seem to have consequences. Um, You know, he is focusing on crime and public safety. He's working on hotspots. He has sent to that very place, you know, some police to kind of give them some support. And, you know, he doesn't have to help the people who had that little ripoff mini market there. He just chased those folks away. And then you have a difference uh, at, at city attorney Ann Davidson, she's kind of doing the opposite of what her predecessor Pete, Pete Holmes did. She's making these filing decisions within five days of a crime to make sure that there's a you know a better connection between crime and the punishment. Uh, I thought a very significant thing that happened in this city was it was a simple hearing, a simple city council hearing by Sarah Nelson, and this was focused. She, she's um, you know leads the economic development part of the council. And this was a hearing where businesses from the U district to Soto came in and started talking about how much trouble they're having just staying open. So much shoplifting, the smashed windows. So the big changes were actually listening to the small business folks who are facing the brunt of the street disorder. And to me, that's new and different. Yeah, I think that when we look at it, the real anomaly is the pandemic period. Um, We saw so much change that happened during the pandemic period in cities across America. Um, But when you look at Bruce's uh, tactics, you know, the the language has changed a little bit. But in many ways, his his approach is, as his own administration has said, sort of getting back to pre-pandemic norms. Um, Durkin called these emphasis patrols, um, sent patrols to certain neighborhoods that, you know, Bruce is calling hotspots. 
Murray also increased patrolling in certain neighborhoods, including uh, Capitol Hill. Um, and you can go back in time and like in 2008, there was, uh, I think, a million dollars in overtime pay to police who were working a hotspot in downtown. Um, so we, we've been trying this for a long time as a city. Um, and the, the real shift is that during the COVID era, there was a real pause because the CDC had said, you know, you, we can't remove encampments because of COVID. Um, and so we're seeing um, a return to a lot of practices, um, but in many ways, it's not it's not incredibly far off from what what Durkin was doing during her term before COVID. Mm. Mike, well, I, I want to check in and see if Mike can uh, see and hear well. Your 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 connection looks good, Mike. Yes, okay. yes, I'm back. And honestly, I mean, I don't think I could do more than echo what I've already heard. I think we've seen the quote unquote hotspot approach in our city for a long time. I'd argue that it's never worked. I think that it's great rhetoric. I think that for the folks that need to hear that, Bruce is talking to them. But more importantly, I mean, when you look at our last local elections, uh, the folks that were backed by big business all won. And what the businesses want to see is sweeps. They want to see visible crime be deterred. They don't want shoplifting. They don't want smashed windows. They don't want loitering. They don't want just people in the streets. And these are the things that are, are going to be addressed. Now, will sweeping people put them outside of Seattle? I, I absolutely doubt that. When you look at South King County, places like Auburn that made it a misdemeanor to camp in tents on city streets or the city of Renton, where residents can easily call and have encampments sweeped by Renton police. Seattle was the place where you can set up an encampment and just stay. Now that that's gone, I think what we're going to see is people just moving from place to place to place because there's still not enough shelter beds and we're still not addressing the root causes that are putting people in poverty in the first place. So I, I would like to um, put this in a bigger uh, context about, like you said, Chase, about COVID. So we're at a different point uh, on COVID and folks are supposedly coming back to work. We were talking about this before the show, you know, who's going back to the office. So one of the moments in that, of course, is that you had Warehouser saying that they wanted employees to come back. But not only were they concerned about COVID, they thought their neighborhood wasn't safe enough for their employees to get to and from work. So they've been working with the city to make some improvements. And I guess they're coming back mid-April. Uh, but, you know, the idea, it seems to me, from Bruce Harrell is he's trying to clear the, uh, make sure that, uh, he, as he said, that, you know, that the sidewalks are open to everyone, everyone. Uh, you know, downtown Seattle is still not what it was. We all know that. It, it's got many different factors uh, to explain that. One of the things the city is watching is the Target store. I know this sounds like a weird thing to watch, but the Target store is threatening to close due to high shoplifting. And, you know, if they close, that's that's deemed to be pretty, pretty bad for downtown Seattle. Of course, downtown Seattle got a new PCC, it's supposed to be a sign of life. But, you know, there is uh, a, a push by this mayor to, to open up the sidewalks. And, you know, that was one of the thoughts about trying to um, remove the encampments on Fourth Avenue, which they were not successful at. Although I believe they'll come back and try that again, because it's this sense, is the city reopening? Are the offices reopening? And if they are, you can't, you can't have the employees who come back saying, well, I don't even feel safe going there because warehouses will just take it back. They'll take back the April date for return. Okay, two questions. Um, 
One is, so even if people move from sidewalks to green belts, do we have enough places for them to go where they feel comfortable going from shelters all the way up to to permanent housing? And then the next question is, since you brought up working, do you, I wonder if you expect, um, you know, how full of workers do you think our cities are going to be compared to pre-pandemic? So there's a menu for you. Anybody, anybody want to claim either one of those questions? Well, I'll address the the come back to work thing. The, uh, I wrote about this. I talked to a lot of recruiters. You know, work from home is one of the biggest perks in tech when they're trying to recruit people. People will take less money uh, to be able to work from home. Not everybody, but some folks. So when you see, for example, um, Microsoft saying we open on such and such a date and all uh, Expedia, we open on such and such a date. Um, sort of is what is what I say, because they have they have allowed these companies have allowed their employees to work a deal with their team managers. And the deal says, you know, whatever it says, it says you need to be in the office one day a week, two days a week, no days a week. And so Yes, the offices will open, and I'm sure they want these people to come back, but, but it's, it's, it's only going to be a percentage and a percentage of the time. It's not going to be these offices are full and teeming with workers, which is what it probably would take to really rescue downtown Seattle. Yeah, when, we, when these big employers made the announcements, they made they acknowledged that it was most likely going to be a, a hybrid move. And you have employees across the country and especially in Seattle and people who've moved to the suburbs who bought homes and moved to the suburbs and now are sort of like, oh, do I want to go back downtown? They're choosing these hybrid paths. And I think we created downtown to really accommodate a lot of workers coming during the daytime from other areas and then leaving at night. And when you take away those employees, suddenly you have this space that is really uh, free of foot traffic. And naturally, that's going to have an impact on public safety when you just have a neighborhood that's suddenly empty. And so in some ways, we've designed our downtowns to uh, be really not resilient for this problem. And so then we're like, faced with the problem and the question of how do we reinvent downtown. Um, Durkin had this program that I thought was interesting called um, Seattle Restored, which is where they were going to activate vacant storefronts with different sort of pop-up shops or art installations. And that was announced towards the tail end of her term. And we're going to hear who the Office of Economic Development is partnering with in the next couple of months. So we'll likely see a lot of sort of artistic activations of the space. Um, but, but, you know, a mural isn't necessarily going to solve, solve all of downtown's problems. But it will be exciting to see sort of what steps the Harrell administration takes to sort of make these spaces more um, active for everyone who lives there. Yeah, I think Seattle Restored is a is a great point. And I do believe that that's still alive and it will still continue. I also think that, you know, Mayor Harold already has a plan in place to bring city workers back by mid-March. Now, I think like Joni mentioned, as we see in the private industry, this is going to be hybrid. So it's not going to be every employee every day, but we're going to see a lot of employees coming back a few days a week. I think that what we're going to see in the private industry, and I've seen some reporting in the Atlantic on this, is you know a lot of companies are trying to revamp their workspaces to be more attractive to workers to give them something to want to come back for, since it's not automatic that everyone just has to be in the office all the time. 
I don't see downtown ever being what it was before when we had commuters that had to come and they had to be in the offices. I don't think we're going to see the shopping. I don't think we're going to get the revenue from the taxes down there. I think that the city is going to have to innovate and shift with the times and just decide how we're going to address these concerns because I just don't see a reality right now where all workers are going to return and we're going to have this pre-pandemic life. How are these companies making the uh, offices a wonderland for those workers who are on the fence? Do you remember any of the uh, uh, tactics? Oh, yes, yes. they. De- I mean, they mentioned things like putting gyms in office spaces mm. and putting more like communal spaces, restaurants, places to eat, things that employees can actually do outside of just work when they get to work, similar to what they would do when they were at home. Now, work will never be home, so we don't know what this will look like. But Seattle being Seattle and the influence that tech has on our city, this is a place where we're definitely going to see those type of innovations emerge. Well, I again, as I say, as, I, as we wrap up this part of the show, I asked some KUOW listeners uh, for their takes. We have a community feedback club. And by the way, you can sign up for that. Go to KUOW.org slash feedback. And so, uh, so some of the, the comments, some people have noticed differences. Uh, one says, I work in Pioneer Square. I've noticed some encampments have been removed between the train station and Occidental Square. This is a welcome change says this person. Uh, Here's a suggestion. Make the Seattle police predominantly women. And uh, another (laughs) listener, I don't know what that would do. Uh, Another listener says, I'm not waiting for others in leadership to change things. I'm rolling up my sleeves. This year, I've built three tiny homes. I've thanked three police officers for their dedication to public safety. I'm working with my neighbors and local police to catch the individual who's repeatedly robbed our mailboxes so we can connect him with counselors who can help him turn his life around. And I'm actively staying involved in my community so we can come together to face and solve tough challenges. Mike, that reminded me of an interview you're, you did regarding you know, getting the person who, uh, who robbed a mailbox counseling to help him turn his life around. You spoke to someone who's... Um, a candidate for the King County prosecutor, and they were talking about this is a prosecutor, but but really uh, into restorative justice. Yeah, um, Stephen Thomas, he has a whole plan. A lot of it he borrowed from Brooklyn, but I mean, he wants to take restorative justice to the next level where it doesn't just involve the victim of a crime, but also the perpetrator and having a full circle where they both get services, they both get the counseling they need. And then at the end, you can bring victim and perpetrator together to actually have some sort of restitution and restorative work done. I think it's a great idea. I think it's a super progressive idea. I just don't know if we're in a place in Seattle and King County, but we're actually ready for that. It seems like in Seattle, which is a big indicator for King County, we went the opposite direction. Yeah, you were you were telling me that. What did you say? Something like uh, Seattle has seemed to be embracing the fact that we're really not that progressive. That was your point of view. I mean, I feel like for a while we wore this badge where we were the big city that had all of these progressive values. But it seems like we've kind of pulled that mask off. I mean, when you look at who won and lost in our local elections, you just look at our our city council just struck down the the extension of the eviction moratorium. And I know that that's the next topic. Yes. But it just it feels like we're in a really interesting place right now where we're really discussing who 
is a neighbor. What is a neighbor? Who do I look at as a neighbor in the city of Seattle? And when you look at the property values here, they're skyrocketing to actually live in Seattle. Who can afford to live here? These are million dollar homes in literally all of our neighborhoods. So our, our city is just going through a lot of change right now. Yeah. Is somebody in a tent a neighbor? Is somebody in a duplex a neighbor? Um, yes, we are. As you said, we're going to discuss the eviction moratorium in just a moment. So that's a good uh, time to take a little break here on Week in Review. That's Mike Davis with South Seattle Emerald. We've got Chase Burns here from The Stranger. We've got columnist Joni Balter with us. And again, you can join our community feedback club. Just go to KUOW.org slash feedback. And we'll be right back on Week in Review. We're live streaming the show so you can see Week in Review. We're on YouTube and Facebook. You just search KUOW Public Radio. And again, I'm with Joni Balter and Chase Burns and Mike Davis. As I said, it was cold this week, as low as 21 degrees officially at SeaTac on Wednesday. Olympia got down to 14. Still cold as we speak here on a Friday afternoon. A uh, little above freezing, though. Times like this, some shelters stay open all day and night. Uh, new cold weather shelters open up. Local government makes some of that happen. Chase, was the emergency response the same under Mayor Harrell as it was under Mayor Durkin, would you say? Well, one thing that's different between the two is that now you have the King County Regional Homelessness Authority that's really up and running. Um, the regional authority was created in, in 2019, but it was delayed because of the pandemic. Um, and so it still works with the cities, but it's really directing a lot of this response now. And we saw their first response earlier this year, sort of the end of last year, with that, that long period where there was a bunch of snow and there was extremely cold weather. And that response didn't go as well as they wanted it to. Um, I believe only about a third of the beds that they had opened earlier this year ended up being full. Um, they had a lot of understaffing and a lot of that was because of the unique conditions. It was right when Omicron was expanding. Um, and it was obviously snow shuts down the city in a very unique way. So transit becomes difficult. Um, but they're back at it this week um, with a, a new sort of crop of shelters having been opened. Um, there was one at City Hall, which was open from it's still open. It's going until tomorrow from 7 p.m. until 6.30 a.m. Uh, and that one's for just under 100 single adults. Um, there's another one by the ferry, ferry terminal. Um, and then there's a few additional shelters that are uh, for young adults that are around the county as well. Yeah. Is this the Salvation Army shelter, the one at City Hall? And then there's yes. this, the Seattle Compass Center. If you want to know what shelters and other services are available, uh, you can always call 211. That's kind of a simple way to get that information, 211. So weather like this is why Seattle still has a ban on wintertime evictions. However, the blanket moratorium on evicting tenants for non-payment is about to go away. Mayor Harrell let it expire next week, and the city council considered overruling him, basically, and extending the eviction moratorium. That's what Violet Lavatai asked them to do with the Tenants Union of Washington. Violet said the moratorium protects tenants from sliding into homelessness. We are not at the end of the pandemic. We are still in the middle of it. We still need to help as many people as we can going forward. But it was landlords like Angie Gerald who carried the day at city council. It's not feasible to continually extend a broad social policy that anyone has the right to simply not pay rent or not vacate a premises when legally obligated on the backs of the smallest landlords. 
So the city council is not uh, acting against the mayor's um, allowing the uh, moratorium to expire. Joni, you said that you were a little uh, surprised by the vote to end this moratorium. Yeah, I absolutely was. I did. I didn't see at least two of the votes there. But um, you know, look, you were talking earlier, Michael, about what's the tone of the city, and there is kind of this is another example of it. Um, there is a sense that we have to get out of the COVID phase and move forward. And the, the council in this vote anyway, is clearly looking at new ways to, to turn the city in a different direction. Uh, you know, it's fair, it's fair, no, the context here is important. So the state ended its eviction moratorium at the end of October. And I think there were only like two local jurisdictions, Burien and maybe Spokane were uh, continuing theirs. So one of the reasons the council voted this way, yes, you heard from some of the smaller mom and pop landlords finally making um, a good case. People think that all landlords are like these, you know, big businesses. But also some of the nonprofit housing providers confided privately to the city council that they needed to be able to um, evict some of their toughest renters. They had some renters engaging in crime and they wanted the ability. So I think that's what maybe won the day with uh, the council voting five to three to, to let it expire. And the thought is, again, uh, small businesses, they're struggling. They can't, uh, an editorial, I think it was this week, that was talking about how they, they, they don't even report sometimes to their insurance that they've had a break-in, that they've had um, uh, windows smashed or things because it just ends up raising the, the price of their insurance. They're having trouble getting insurance. So, you know, you don't want to over or understate this, but, you know, crime is up in the city and people are dealing with it. GeekWire wrote a piece about, you know, the various businesses wrestling with, should we come back to work? Um, because, you know, the COVID issues, but also the crime issues and GeekWire this week was the, uh, had their third break in in their Fremont offices. So it was kind of personal. Hmm. Any other observations on the end of the many times extended uh, Seattle eviction moratorium? Yeah, you know, a lot of landlords have, as Joni has been mentioned, have been saying that they can evict people who are sort of dangerous or committing crimes. But the, you know, the eviction moratorium did allow landlords to evict tenants who were a threat to the health and safety of their community. Um, and, and small landlords have been evicting people during the moratorium. Um, the Housing Justice Project uh, in Seattle claimed during that council meeting that um, small landlords filed about a fifth of Seattle evictions during the moratorium. That moratorium was specific to uh, renters who couldn't pay rent because of COVID-related issues. Um, and, and Burian, who extended theirs and tied it to the state, um, the state's civil emergency or the state's emergency, um, their moratorium is also specific to people who can't pay rent um, because of COVID-related uh, issues. And so I think the real problem that a lot of renters and renters advocates are bringing up here is that there is a huge need for rental assistance and the county and the city are giving out rental assistance, but it's the process is slow. Um, it's getting faster, um, but a lot of that assistance is still getting processed. And so while that assistance is still getting processed, um, what account, people like council member Sawant were, were saying is that we need to tie it to um, the actual emergencies end and not this sort of vague point um, when we're gonna ultimately end up 
pushing people out onto the streets or into homeless situations um, during a time when, as we were just talking about, we, we, we have shelters that are capped at like 100 people. We, we can't afford a single person to be out on the streets. And so that's what, that's what a lot of this tension is about, um, is, is about buying more time so that more people can get assistance. That gave me deja vu weird deja vu i just this is just a conversation that we always have in our city and i think the that with the the moratorium ending i do think that it's fair to point out that not every landlord is some big corporate billionaire like there are smaller landlords people that just own a property or two but i honestly think more importantly Seattle just isn't affordable like we could talk about covid we know what the pandemic did but when you look at how fast rent is being raised in Seattle. I mean, will people be able to afford rent with or without pandemic? I mean, as things are coming back and people are able to go back to work, we still have 124,000 people that are behind on their rent in our area. That's like 12% of all renters. I think that what we're really seeing is just a shift in our city where our city is just becoming more and more unaffordable. It's the haves and the have nots. And if you don't have that big tech job, you're going to have trouble living in Seattle, period. And I think a lot of people are ultimately just going to get pushed out. And Bellevue as well. Definitely. Even Spokane is expensive. That article was wild. This who is a New York Times piece about uh, someone from who moved from California to Spokane and was having trouble putting it together there. And their prices have gone up so much. So you're, you're absolutely right. We don't have enough housing. Uh, you know, there is there's sort of hope on the horizon when you look at uh, the legislature, which is so flush, is finally going to give, I think it'll be about $500 million. Uh, to homelessness statewide. That's something every mayor I've ever covered has has wanted, that help from the state. There's 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 help on the way, but it's just, you're right, it takes so long to turn it into a, a shelter uh, arrangement for tonight if it's cold out. Well, I have a question for you, uh, for you esteemed journalist on this call. I mean, what you're do you think about- too. <laughs> You're too. Just as esteemed. I just, you know, I like your point of I'm a little more pessimistic sometimes. When I see these things, I'm not surprised. Like when we talk about um, the zoning laws in Seattle, and like will we actually see shifts in neighborhoods where we can have more multifamily units? I say absolutely not. I'm curious to see how you all feel. And do you even think that that's a viable option to create more housing in Seattle? Or will we just essentially build more unaffordable housing? Sometimes we build, we mostly build unaffordable housing. Now there, there was that bill in the legislature that didn't make it to um, have a sort of a statewide policy about that. It didn't pass. More pessimism. Yeah. I know I'm extremely pessimistic. I mean, I, I live it, or I optimistic if my, you're watching your home value just rise and rise. Yes, Chase. Yeah. No, I was just saying, you know, I, I don't expect that I'm ever going to be able to own a home. So it's hard to personally uh, engage in the conversation because I just I felt like I resigned myself to renting um, when I like, was in my early 20s and I was just starting um, to look at my future. I was like, there's there's no way that I'm going to be able to ever afford anything, especially in the cities that I'm looking to live in, like like Seattle. I, I never thought I was going to be able to own a home here, which is so I'm, I'm at the bottom level of pessimism. Um, you know, I'm I'm looking at all these different debts that I carry that I know other younger people carry like student loan debts. You know, I'm fortunate to not have any medical debt, but like if that was ever added on to me, I, you know, there's no way I can own property. And so when I, I, I sort of barter with 
my landlord to try to have a good agreement. But ultimately it comes down to, uh, are they being generous? You know, <laughs> are they going to just decide to, to raise it? Um, there are certain protections that are really, really lovely. Like the fact that we suddenly now get this six month period um, for a significant rent increase in Seattle, um, that's going to help out a lot. Still doesn't mean that I'm going to be able to keep my place um, a year from now. And this so is it's just, part, it's, just to explain, Chase, this is um, you get six months to pay. You, you can sort of make an installment plan for back rent. Is that oh, are you yeah, talking sorry. about just w- the notification that rent is about yeah. to go up? Yes, I was talking about the recent city council uh, bill that was passed that allows uh, renters to get a little bit more of a heads up than like two months. So now that they're going to get now they will get like six months um, if there's a, a significant rent increase um, and that you know, before it was just sort of like a surprise, <laughs> like you, you'd have like, oh, okay, a month and a half, and then you'd suddenly have to have to shuffle on out. Right. Okay. Well, let's wrap up there just to remind you it's to, next Tuesday is when the eviction moratorium ends. So uh, evictions allowed in Seattle for, uh, for non-payment. Again, that was a pen, those were pandemic related uh, tenant losses. And uh, the city is setting up an eviction assistance webpage and it'll direct people to free legal assistance and payment assistance on the rules on eviction. That site is seattle.gov slash eviction assistance, seattle.gov slash eviction assistance. And Seattle, again, as I mentioned at the top, is still, first of all, prohibiting evicting children or teachers during the school year, and uh, the eviction ban during the winter months continues. So this year that is marked at the end of February though so again March 1st it's not officially winter as for for the uh, as far as the eviction ban is concerned okay let's uh, pause here with Mike Davis from South Seattle Emerald Joni Balter columnist Joni Balter here and the strangers Chase Burns and when we come back we just mentioned that the state legislature uh, could afford to help uh, and that's because the state legislature's got billions of dollars more than we thought it would at this point. So we're going to see what they are and aren't going to do with that when we come back. Is Washington state in a trade war? This week, our state legislature moved ahead with a plan to tax the gasoline and diesel that we refine here in Washington and export to neighboring states. KUOW reporter Tom Bonsi told us that this six cents per gallon exported fuel tax would raise $2 billion over 16 years from out-of-state drivers to pay for transportation infrastructure here in Washington. The tax proposal has stoked bipartisan anger and threats of retaliation in recent days from politicians in Oregon, Idaho, and Alaska. Sympathetic Republicans in the Washington legislature tried for a third time on Tuesday to strip the offending tax out of the larger transportation spending and revenue package. This is State Rep. Eric Robertson. We certainly don't want to get into what was described as a trade war or lengthy litigation that would otherwise diminish our ability to move forward. Okay, now maybe in a time of actual war, we should uh, tamp down the martial metaphors. So if we're not in a trade war, are we, are we in a trade tiff? What do you think? Yeah, we're in a we're in a trade tiff, and it, it seems unnecessary to me. Um, I, I get it. Washington does most of the oil refining, and wants to be able to charge these other states. But it's such it seems like needless bad karma. Do we really need this? Uh, I I noted this morning that um, 
you know, some of our lawmakers were making fun of Oregon Governor Kate Brown and, and State Senator Marco Leos apologized this morning for some of the, you know, he said she's just, you know, running out of gas. She's she's leaving office soon. Uh, and it some of the things, I mean, this is funny, I guess, but Alaska suggested that they'd, they'd get back at us um, by putting a tax on fish. Not that they were actually going to do this, but I, I don't know. It just, it doesn't seem like this is the way to go. The, the, the main goal um, in doing this was to pass a transportation package without raising the gas cap gas tax. Seems a little too clever by half. It's not worth the, the bad feelings about it to me anyway. Yeah. And a lot of this discussion about the this trade war happened before the actual war that we're seeing this week. And so it was sort of last week and into, into Monday and uh, the sort of fallout is continuing to happen. But my prediction would be that you know, with the sanctions against Russia, everyone's sort of talking about oil prices right now. Um, Biden was talking about it in his speech yesterday. A bunch of reporters are really focusing on oil prices. Um, so I think that as the nation continues to really focus on oil prices with this war, um, I would expect that either this will change during the process or that when it gets to Inslee's desk, he may do what um you know, what uh, the governors all around him have asked for, which would be that he would veto this. Um, but he I don't, said I sort he of... won't veto, though. Oh, he, he did? Said, Sorry. Yeah, I he said that. that. But but, well, but you're right. You're right, Chase, on a, on a different front, because what I'm hearing is that our lawmakers are talking to Oregon lawmakers and Idaho lawmakers, and they're trying to figure it out. So you're you're right that it may go away, especially bad timing on, you know, the price of oil. It seemed petty, to be honest. I mean, to do this now especially for this. I mean, I'm looking at the projects, like the biggest project that they're doing this for is like the, the bridge between Vancouver and Portland. Right. And then you look at the fact that they got this huge surplus now and there's already like two billion earmarked extra to come to transportation anyway. It's just, I mean, I, I shouldn't laugh, but I had to laugh. I mean, this is where the Democrats decided to play hardball. Like of all the issues that there are, this is where they drew the line and they're standing so hard on this. But there's no way that the other states are going to let this slide. If you're in Oregon, a place that gets 90 percent of their gas from Washington and you're paying more at the pump, you know what type of pressure they're going to put on their politicians when they're saying like this law that we couldn't vote on is making is costing us money. Like there, there there's going to be a lot of pushback. And at some point, the politicians are going to have to talk to each other. But I, I don't see this going too far. And you mentioned the the state legislature as a whole, who has all this extra money. Um, what I think that both the House and the Senate are growing the the budget. They come up with their budget, and 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 each are spending six billion more dollars. Um, they're not um, they're not raising taxes on Washingtonians anyway that I've heard. But but there have been calls by Republicans and not not completely Republicans. To, to give some of that tax money back because we know Washington state is the most regressive state tax structure in the land. And so um, you know, there, there, it could have been an opportunity for the state to, would there be a way to, when, when you don't have an income tax, when it's mostly sales tax, is there a way for Washington state to sort of give a, a, a needs-based um, tax rebate? It would depend on how you do it, but there was talk of uh, rolling back uh, temporarily the amount of the sales tax, uh, you know, because that's one way to reach people who are are victimized by our tax system. You're exactly right. You know, this is the flip side in some ways of 
what we were talking about earlier of the real estate boom. Um, that's where some of the money comes from. Car sales are nuts. Regular business is actually doing pretty well here. Tech is doing well here. And so the idea that they couldn't, couldn't uh, afford to give this back is not true. Uh, but the legislature probably can't help themselves. They, they, they'll put a little bit in rainy day funds. They should put a lot. And they seem to want to spend it. Uh, the, the good thing is, as we mentioned earlier, is they're going to put some of it toward homelessness. Um, Behavioral health, could, spending. I mean, there are there's vulnerable populations to be spent on. To be spent on. Uh, there's a bill by Senator Reuven Carlisle to raise the small business tax ex- exemption again. A lot of people want to help small business. They bore the brunt of the pandemic in many ways and the brunt of some of the runaway crime. These folks need help. I mean, they probably do. They certainly don't need to do the thing that that aggravates our surrounding states that I'm going to agree with uh, you, Michael, on that. And it just seems like this is a good time to save. But, um, you know, a lot of projects that people want are going to get funded as well. Yeah, and really, you know, it starts out that this is good news. Like, it's good news that we have such a surplus and that we're able to spend it um, in different ways on programs that have, have or in areas that have long time needed it. Also, it, legislators are, are still debating these supplemental budgets as we speak. So it's, it's very TBD. A lot of legislators, including Democrats, have talked about tax credits, like Joni said, for uh, small businesses or very small businesses, as I read. So very it's small, in, right. Yeah, very small businesses. Yeah. Um, so it's in flux. Um, and I think if we talk about this in, in two weeks, we'll have a better idea about what sort of potential tax breaks would come um, from a range of legislature, legislature, legislators, including Democrats. Okay, that's fair. I have heard about a sales tax holiday right before, sort of a back-to-school uh, no sales tax up to $1,000 of spending, something like that. Yeah, someone was talking about like no sales tax at restaurants, but then it's also like restaurants were complaining because they were like, wait, how am I going to like suddenly calculate no sales tax for a few days? My computers aren't made for that. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's a lot of conversations happening. Okay. No sales tax holiday sounds fun. Uh, I just like the <laughs> ring of that. Yeah. I just like the holiday. Can we have it off? I'm here. Yeah, Is that a yeah. day off? <laughs> Uh, listen, before we go, um, yet another Seattle grunge era rock star died this week. Mark Lanigan started Screaming Trees actually in Ellensburg, but he came over here, worked with Kurt Cobain, who's gone, and Lane Staley, who's gone, and Chris Cornell, who's gone. I, I, I think his best known, Screaming Trees' best known single was from Singles. I think I've got that. Uh, you can probably hum it if you're old enough, but here's a little bit. Okay. Uh, Mike, you're a millennial. You probably have no idea who I'm talking about. Does that song ring a bell it's at all? It's funny. I caught heat for not having any idea who that guy is. But when you played that song, I've heard that song okay. a bunch of times. That's crazy. There you go. From singles, come- four young Gen Xers who can afford apartments on Capitol Hill back then. Yes, Chase. Did, well, I was just going to say, people, people came after you, Mike. People came after me hard. People came after me hard. Where, on Twitter yeah. or something, you said, who is this guy? Yeah, yeah. I had to start keeping that a secret. Yeah, just right. uh, just you know, being sad with everybody else. It's always a tragedy. 
Indeed. Yeah. Mike, I, you are not alone. I will say that I did not have a strong connection to Mark Lanigan. Um, I but learned a lot about him because Seattle is very um, obsessed with, I mean, Gen X culture really defined um, Seattle and sort of continues to, find, to define Seattle. Uh, and a lot of our institutions are really based around um, a lot of the stuff that was happening in the 90s. And you can see that in like, I, I was listening to KXP when the news broke and uh, DJ Cheryl Waters was uh, was DJing and she had a longtime connection to him. And I could just tell, like, I was like, oh, this is a big deal because she like, it, she had a very beautiful moment. She played that song, which obviously has different uh, tones to it when someone's actually passed away. Um, but it made me think about how I, you know, no offense, but Gen X culture is aging and we're going to see a lot of uh, icons from that time period pass away over the next like 10, 20, 30 years. And uh, it'll it, it'll be interesting to see how we respond because so many people just had such a strong outpouring of grief um, on the radio, on Facebook. I thought like we were going to have a, a day of mourning in Seattle, <laughs> but Mark Lanigan was, a, was wonderful and he released like 12 solo albums or something like that and was prolific. And um, for people who watched that Anthony Bourdain parts unknown episode about Seattle, Anthony Bourdain was obsessed with Mark Lanigan and brought him um, for that episode. And there was like a whole sing along to uh, a Mark Lanigan track that Knut Berger friend of the show <laughs> famously was like singing a Mark Lanigan song. So it's, you know, it's everywhere in Seattle. Yeah, I was I was having fun with being of that generation. That's my generation, uh, singles and all that. Uh, but but yeah, he was he was a great voice. He was he was self aware about having been a terrible person. I mean, you couldn't be more down on him than he was in his in his memoir. But you know, he went he he went through a lot of reckoning. Uh, I don't know exactly what he died of. I know he had had COVID, um, but. Yeah, it hasn't. Uh, official cause of death hasn't been announced. Last I last I saw. Yeah. So so one of my friends who worked with him and Pearl Jam described him as incredibly shy. The thought is that um, he had a really hard time with COVID, like it was long COVID. He. I'm not saying that's why he died, but he may have. And uh, she also, the song you played, um, and the screaming trees. Um, you know, described that as one of the most underrated bands to come out of that time. And you're right, um, as hard as it is for um, folks to think of these folks uh, being involved with AARP, it's even harder to think of so many of them dying at a young age. It's, it's amazing. If I'm not mistaken, Eddie Vedder is the only survivor, maybe the only survivor from the key founding grunge bands from the 80s and 90s around here. Well, lead singer, and I mean, there's a lot of other musicians, but uh, right, but just of the of the leaders of these groups. Yeah. Um, so it's quite something how many have died from all kinds of things: suicide, and drug addiction, and maybe COVID. Yeah. Well, Cheryl Waters and uh, the musicians who worked with them, and his loved ones, and I, I, I think he his life ended in Ireland, actually. But there are right. a lot, of, as as Chase said, a lot of people here. Uh, touched by Mark Lanigan and and uh, and sorry to lose him. Um, we're we're just at the end of weekend review, which gives us the chance to uh, turn around and talk about what made us actually smile. Uh, in contrast, this week, um, so I thought I'd pass on a, a couple of things. Uh, the King County Council this week passed a motion in support of plans to build a major league cricket field at Marymore Park in Redmond. I knew that we had a lot of cricket players here. I didn't know we had at least three adult cricket leagues 
And GeekWire says this would be a 20-acre site at uh, Marymore and could host the Major League Cricket, uh, U.S. National Team, World Cup, and other big matches. So a uh, construction beginning next year. Um, also, the uh, an update on invasive European green crabs that I told you about recently. These are these, uh, well, as the name implies, uh, crabs that have, it's already a big problem on the East Coast, but they're here now endangering our baby Dungeness crabs and our eelgrass beds. And so I was talking about the idea of fighting them by eating them, which they do on the East Coast. Um, KOW's John Ryan reported, though, that it's not quite that simple. They don't taste that good. They're not that big. If you could convince people to catch them as they do uh, on the East Coast, there's a good chance they'll kill the wrong ones. Uh, and uh, researchers, however, are exploring controlling them by bringing in a kind of barnacle. So John talked to a marine biologist at the UW, Sean McDonald, about this barnacle. If you've ever seen the movie Alien with Sigourney Weaver, that's essentially what rising cephalin barnacles are. They're somewhat terrifying until you realize they only affect crabs. They invade the crab's entire body, but that's not all. They are a castrating parasite. Lab experiments showed in addition to green crabs, the castrating parasites killed all the native Dungeness crabs they encountered. Okay, so indiscriminate castrating barnacles on the job there. That's uh, what I found fascinating this week. Anything anything hopeful or smile-worthy you want to leave us with, team? Later sunsets. Yeah. Uh, sunset at 5.47, and that was later by two very exciting minutes in Los <laughs> Angeles. <laughs> later than Los Angeles. Oh, I hadn't tracked that. That's a good you didn't one. know we were competing no, over that's this? That's a we good co- another competition. Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we get the Seattle Storm. We get one more year of Sue Bird. That's right. That's right. Sue Bird, and is the nucleus together? Are they going to be champions? They better be. Last <laughs> hurrah. <laughs> Speaking of competition, how about you, Chase? Any smiles you want to leave us with? Um, I was smiling about the news that there's, you remember that the bar Rebar in Seattle, um, it closed recently. MC Queen Lucky, Disco Nights in my youth, right about the time Singles was coming out. Yes, sir, go on. Yeah, talking about Gen X culture. um, Rebar, big part. Big part of Gen X culture. Um, it had to close down. I believe they're still looking for a new space. Um, it was in the Denny Triangle. Their most famous night uh, is called Flammable. It was a, the longest running house night in the the country, I believe. Um, they've It's found a new home. Um, Cremework, just down the block, they opened up a new space called Cherry. And it's now going to be there permanently every Sunday. So it's staying on the same block. Um, and that so rarely happens. And so the like, rebar is gone, but its most popular night is still there right on the block. So that made me smile. Something not going away is always news around here. That's Chase Burns, editor at The Stranger, and Joni Balter, political analyst and contributing columnist. We also have been talking with South Seattle Emerald reporter Mike Davis. And, uh, you know, I love when we come together and do this. Thanks so much for, for helping us through the week together. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Great to see you all. And big thanks to Kevin Kniestet, who produces this program, Tio Popescu, and Juan Pablo Chiquiza. It's because of them that we can look at the show on YouTube and Facebook. And we have a social media presence because of my colleagues. And uh, I'm sure glad you joined us today and hope you'll be with us again a week from now. I'll be here with Week in Review.